This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio, Thursday, October the 6th, 5pm in the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Alex, markets, well, equity's going nowhere. Basically, we're waiting for the payroll number tomorrow. Uh, we're getting a lot of Fed speak today. Uh, the narrative coming out from the FOMC is a very clear one. We will continue to hike rates uh, and we will continue to do so until we see uh, inflation coming down on a sustainable basis. The Bank of Canada saying similar things uh, as well over the, uh, the last hour. We're getting a briefing from the governor there. Today, we've seen the pound coming under pressure. We're seeing most major currencies coming under pressure versus the US dollar. Uh, the pound is trading down by 1.84%. We're back down down to 111, we could be uh, about to retake 110 as well. What we're also seeing today is a fairly big move uh, in the gilt curve. We are continuing by the looks of things to see UK pension funds, insurers dropping particularly long end assets at the back end of the gilt market. And that is significant. Uh, the Bank of England's not having to spend so much money to stabilise that market. And it has stabilised to a certain extent. But it's interesting that assets are still being sold. This crisis that we are seeing in the UK, Alex, far from over. No, I'm just messing with you. I'm just messing with you. So the the story for me pausing there is Guy and I had a total thing where he's like, I bet you can't go more than five minutes without talking. So on purpose, I haven't been talking. Oh. It works brilliantly on radio, Charlie. Yeah, it does. Was Charlie was freaking out, out so by on, the way. On television, on television, where you see Alex not talking, you can actually see Alex not right. talking. But when it happens on radio, everybody kind of freaks out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But right. that's exactly so you why win. I did it. You win, you win, you win. But really, the person I freaked out the most was Charlie. Bates. I know. All of a sudden, <laughs> he's like, I'm "Look at up. me, right, he's exactly. pointing." Talk, talk, talk. <laughs> Um, Anywho, I I was just going to add to that point that uh, talk about going nowhere. Uh, You got jobless claims uh, rising a little bit, continuing claims rising a bit. The challenger job cuts were huge. There is a story here in the market that we're not seeing the seasonal hiring as much as we're used to yet right now because everyone's kind of waiting to see what demand's going to do, which raises the stakes even more, I think, uh, for the jobs number and that U3 rate tomorrow. Charlie, over to you. (laughs) Charlie, what are the headlines that we need to know? (laughs) And here we go. I might not have a joke, but there's nothing to joke about in terms of what some of the key headlines are today. A wild first month for Liz Truss's government has seen at least £300 billion wiped from the combined value of the nation's stock and bond markets. While assets globally have been roiled by central bank efforts to tame surging inflation, confidence in the UK has been shaken. The September sell-off on concerns about the Truss government's tax cuts saw the pound hit a record low against the dollar. Intervention by the Bank of England and a humiliating government climb down amid questions over credibility. More than a fifth of British businesses are not confident they can weather a looming recession, according to a study published by wealth management accounting and consulting firm Evelyn Partners. Almost half of the firms recognize there is a likelihood they could face bankruptcy or insolvency in the coming months, with 15% saying that such an outcome looks highly likely. This according to research of 501 UK business owners with revenue in excess of five million pounds. Well, this might leave you speechless. The French Ski Federation, mayors from mountain resorts, and ski instructors are lashing out at the decision to award the 2029 Asian Winter Games to Saudi Arabia. 
saying the decision goes against what is desirable for the planet. In a joint statement also signed by the Union of Ski Area Operators, they said they were flabbergasted by the plan to host the competition, quote, in a place naturally poor in precipitation and water where there were no ski resorts or slopes to date. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. So I have seen people snowboarding down dunes in in the gulf like so you can do that there but i'm not sure it's it's gonna kind of extend as far as the winter olympics i i i very rarely agree with french ski instructors but on this one i might charlie thank you very much indeed talking of going downhill fast let's pivot to uk politics uh, and talk about what is happening here liz truss has had a deeply disappointing conservative party conference um she now faces the return of mps to parliament she has to pass a series of um pieces of legislation that may not be that easy to do what is the state of play right now? Um, we need to figure this out because I think it's going to be a story that, that is going to dominate the headlines over the next few days. Bloomberg's Alex Morales joining us now in the studio. Alex, we, we've done the Conservative Party conference. It didn't go well. I, I read report after report of disgruntled MPs that are going to return from this conference if they were even there in the first place. And now they're heading back to Parliament. How much trouble is Liz Truss in? Well, it's really quite extraordinary that you've got a prime minister who's um, just a month into government. She should normally be enjoying a honeymoon and she she has a 71 seat majority, let's not forget. And yet she seems to find herself in the same sort of situation that Theresa May was in when Theresa May had a minority government uh, in that she's beholden to her backbenchers. She's already caved in on one fairly significant policy in in getting getting rid of the um, ink, the she was planning to scrap the higher rate of income tax and she U-turned on that during the party conference. Um, and and that's shown her backbenchers that she can be turned. And so now everyone who disagrees with the policy will be trying to uh, to, to sort of win, uh, win over the prime minister mm-hmm. and get her to cancel stuff she wants to do. So she's really in a very difficult position. Um, and... Well- um, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of things she wants to do. The, 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 the big brewing storm at the moment will be over um, benefits. Um, I think the government has to make a decision in the next couple of months about whether to uprate uh, welfare payments in line with inflation or in line with wages. Now, mm-hmm. all the hints Liz Truss has been given is that she wants to uh, raise them in line with wages, which would be considerably lower and save the government a lot of money than inflation. But, but that's a really bad look. Um, when essentially you're giving the poorest people in society a real-term cut um, in their earnings at the same time as uh, you're saying, for instance, um, getting rid of the cap on bankers' bonuses. So she Mm -hmm. faces a fairly turbulent return to Parliament. Okay, Alex, let's break that down. There's a lot to unpack there. So um, just in terms of the logistics, if she tries to push the whole thing through, possibly then nothing gets through. So if she kind of does it bit by bit... What bits get put forward first and what bits get put on the back burner? Well, I, I mean, I, I'm going to confess here that I don't know exactly which bits have to be put to a vote because this wasn't a budget. So there won't be a finance bill accompanying, which, which is what you'd normally get with a budget. Um, but there are some things that do need to be voted through. I mean, the, the, the most obvious one that needs to be voted through is um, the repealing of, of the extra um, bit of um, national insurance that was brought in earlier this year. Um, that was brought in by legislation. So that legislation now needs to be repealed. 
I don't think that's going to be particularly controversial. Um, Labour support it, um, and most of her party support it. Um, things on, um, again, the income tax, that's not going to be a problem. Um, yep. she, she's lowering um, the, the, she's lowering the, the, the sort of base rate of income tax for everyone. Um, and I don't think there's much opposition to that. So, so it's, it's really when she gets to things like benefits. And, I, and, and again, I don't think that has to be legislated for, but there are certainly mechanisms in Parliament that, that people can if use. If any of this fails, is it an existential crisis for her? Um, I mean, the Isn't existential crisis, if she, start, if she starts limping from defeat to defeat to defeat, um, you know, as I said, she has a majority of 71. A prime minister with a majority of 71 should not be in that position. But she is. But she is. A and you but have to wonder whether or how, how much MPs will take. And if she is, if she continues to fail, how much longer they will tolerate. Well, I mean, so part of this depends on what things need to get voted on. Sure, and again, so I, I, don't, I don't know how many looming votes there are that she's like, she, she might stand a chance of losing. But th there's also what you mentioned at the beginning, there's the, the situation in the markets. Now, if the gilt market keeps coming under pressure um, and, and the Bank of England's um, assistance yep. programmes, I think it runs out next week, it stops running next yep. week, then, then she, you know, she faces the prospect of maybe another Bank of England bailout. Um, and, and, you know... But she needs some wins here. She does, I, yes, she is does. Is there an easy and, win somewhere on something? Well, the, 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 I don't know if it's an easy win, but what what she needs to do is is bring a bit a bit of stability. So what what everyone wanted after the mini it's called a mini budget. It was neither a budget nor was it mini. Um, but what but what a lot of her MPs want to see is the sort of maths behind that. They want the independent analysis that comes from the Office of Budget Responsibility. Now, Kwasi Kwarteng has said that that's coming on November the twenty third. There's a big constituency of people who want to see it sooner. Um, Mel Stride, who's, the, who's a Tory MP, but he's chairman of the Treasury Select Committee, says it needs to come before the Bank of England's interest rate decision on um, November the 3rd. And that's really to give markets a bit of confidence in uh, the government, you know, has done yeah. the maths. It has, it has a genuine plan to get de debt falling as a percentage of GDP, and that would take the pressure off, off guilt, I would imagine. Are the polls really as bad as they look for the Conservatives. Was it 14% approval rating? Well, I think that's her, that's her, that's her, that's her, that's her, that's her personal rating. I mean, I mean, I mean, you can never put enough, you can never put much sway in any individual poll, but, but certainly there have been a succession of really very, I mean, terrible polls for the Tories. Um, at the beginning of the Labour Party conference, there was a poll, there was a YouGov poll that put Labour, um, gave Labour a 17-point lead, which was the biggest lead Labour had ever enjoyed in a YouGov poll, and YouGov's been doing polls since 2000. Um, three days later, YouGov issued another poll, which gave Labour a 33-point. So they'd set a record and then doubled that record right. um, three days later. So it's, it really is quite incredible. And, and other polling companies have given them, you know, polling, Labour polling leads in the 20s. So, you know, if, if you were a Tory government going into a general election with that sort of polling, you'd expect a, a, a near wipeout. Alex, we'll I leave it there. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. We're going to continue the conversation. Alex Morales, thank you very much indeed. Um, Liz Truss has gone from Birmingham to Prague. Um, I suspect actually what she's doing now uh, in Prague, uh, meeting as part of the uh, the first meeting of the European political community, which is a big project that is put, being pushed by Emmanuel Macron, may feel like a bit of a relief after the Conservative Party conference that has taken place in Birmingham. Maria Tadeo is at that event and joins us now. Maria, we're just pivoting off talking about Liz Truss. I understand there is a, a, a bilateral taking place between her and Emmanuel Macron. Do we know anything about that? Do we know what's being discussed? 
Yeah, in fact, and I think Guy is either just started or is about to start between the two of them uh, here in, in Prague. And as you said, the timing, the setup of this for the prime minister may be a relief to get away from uh, the many domestic issues that she has. And the overall picture to here is, as you said, this is an idea that Emmanuel Macron, the French president, uh, put on the table where he suggested there needs to be some type of constructive debate space where non-EU countries and EU countries can get around the table and talk about the issues that we have in common. And there, there's many, whether you're looking at migration, security, trade, all of this. But of course, this is particularly important between the French and the UK, because I'm sure you remember very well, a few weeks ago, she was asked, is Macron a friend or a foe for the UK? And she responded, the jury's out. So perhaps mm. today we get some clarity in terms of whether the temperature between the two can cool down a little. Is this in any way more focused on Brexit or is this an energy conversation, security conversation? Look, I, I think for them, uh, of course, Brexit is always the elephant in the room. The Brits always perceive perhaps the French as the toughest country on Brexit. The French would disagree and they say, well, the issues uh, that are pending, particularly around the Irish border, they're your own making. This was a deal that you signed. And also you have to talk to the Irish and get the solution they can live with. It's not that we're the bad guys. But of course, there is always a game of perception uh, between the two Yesterday, I had a, a conversation with a diplomat who told me if she comes here in good faith, she will find there is an honest, open channel for communications uh, with the EU. I think that the body language here, the, the type of talks that they have will be key. And of course, that picture between the two, I mean, tomorrow this is going to make the front pages. That's, that's clear. And the energy, look, I think that's also an area where the two can talk. There's a lot of, uh, well, connectivity uh, discussions that the UK could have with the EU, particularly heading into a difficult winter where the UK could be in blackouts and there may be areas where the European Union can help. And then this can be extended to other areas where the UK may be able to help uh, the EU. And one thing that I've heard repeatedly here, and it's pretty interesting too, is that the Europeans concede that the UK has very good intelligence when it comes uh, to the war. They do see they have to be, uh, will allow the Ukrainians in some ways to step up their fight against the Russians, and they do appreciate the intel that they provide. So, as I said, you know, maybe we're in for a cooling down of tensions if this goes well, but that's a big if. Maria, I've got 30 seconds left. Um, is the EU on the same page when it comes to energy? No, and and that's the, the the brief answer. I think this is a long conversation. Tomorrow, this will be left and center, really center stage. But, Guy, this is incredibly complex. When you talk about a price cap, there's many options. There's 27 countries. You know how this goes. We're in for weeks. Maria, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Thank you for staying around uh, late for us. Maria Tadeo joining us, European uh, Bloomberg, European uh, politics correspondent um, joining us there. Um, all right, coming up, to not forget... The debacle of Credit Suisse is continuing to unfold. Lots of analyst suggestions out there about what the company should be doing, potentially an outside investor to help uh, spin off certain areas of its business. We're going to break down the latest and what makes the most sense next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson over in London. Um, Okay, Credit Suisse again making some news here. Uh, A couple things. One, uh, Bloomberg is reporting that they're looking for an outside investor 
to take a partial stake in order to provide some capital, plus help fund the costs of hiring and keeping talent in uh, in certain divisions. Then you also have an analyst uh, that was uh, J- over at J.P. Morgan that was saying, "Look, Credit Suisse is worth a lot more than the market is pricing it, but guys, we got to get that final restructuring. That has to happen sooner rather than later." So let's dig deeper into this. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence senior banks analyst Allison Williams uh, joins us now. Allison, let's just start on the reporting from Bloomberg, uh, talking about bringing an outside investor as a partial stake to basically just help fund any kind of spinoff or movement. Um, what do you think about that? You think it's a valid point? I think that's what Credit Suisse would like to do. I think that it makes a lot of sense. The question, of course, is going to be, you know, who that investor will be, and you know, what are going to be the economics of that deal. Um, Bloomberg actually had reported uh, earlier this. A month, or perhaps it was in September, that two of the parties that could be interested, BNP Paribas as well as um, Apollo Global. And I think that that, that sort of shows you that, um, you know, one of those is a competitor. If that happens, my guess is they're going to want to buy the business outright. It, uh, in, the, in the other case with Apollo, um, this is a company that is actually um, looking for those types of assets. Um, so it could be a, a good fit if they structure some sort of partnership. But will Apollo, um, especially um, you know, given where, where the bargaining power might be, will they insist on some type of outright ownership? Do you think that Credit Suisse will be able to accept that outright ownership? At the moment, it's in a really difficult spot. Management is a really difficult spot. Shares are trading, let's call them circa four. JPM says they're probably worth around six. It's trading on a pretty um, pretty small um, 0.2, 0.3 tangible book. They don't want to raise money, so they're really getting cornered Correct. here. So could they refuse an offer for a significant portion of the business at a reasonable, I, inverted commas, valuation? So, I mean, they, they can um, pursue different options. It's just going to be a question of what is, is the value destruction to your point. And so one of the um, options was to raise capital. You know, they, the bank could have raised capital through a share issuance. They, they can obviously still do that, but the massive dilution is obviously going to be something that um, you know current shareholders are not going to like and where are they going to find um, sort of the, the new shareholders. So I think that is, that's what, uh, to your point, makes um, you know, sort of this potential sale to third parties more attractive, mm-hmm. um, but also gives them some bargaining power because they can, can as well see what, what's happening with the stock. Um, but, but keep in mind that even though you know, the shares are trading at a significant fraction to book, but a lot of that is, is just based on the share issuance. And I mm-hmm. think you also referenced uh, a report that's out there. Obviously, I, I haven't seen the report, but I can imagine that that analyst is pointing to the fundamental value of some of the businesses that Credit Suisse has, including uh, their wealth management business. It's exactly what it says, that um, they're saying that the bank should pivot away from investment banking, focus on wealth management, etc. Um, how, how do you value what this bank is actually worth? At this point, so uh, the way that you approach it, right, is you can you can look at the wealth management business. You would look at the asset management business. I think any investor would try to look at sort of a normalized valuation for those businesses. Obviously, you know the current market environment today is a little bit tougher. 
So where, uh, you know, if any kind of transaction involving any of their businesses happen today, it's going to have that sort of cyclical discount um, and then also could reflect some of the bargaining power we were discussing. But I think if you look at the fundamental value of the wealth business over time, there is value there. Um, certainly with the uh, investment banking franchise. Now, investment banking includes things like M&A and IPO issuance. They also do have a really strong leverage lending franchise. Unfortunately, this is a good environment uh, for those types of businesses. M&A a little bit, bit better than the IPO and leverage lending, obviously. Um, and then the securitized Products Group, that's the, 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 the business I think that's getting the most attention, and rightfully so. It's not really connected to the rest of their businesses, so I think it's harder yeah. for them to make a case for it. It has good returns over time, but it's also uh, a business that in the current environment um, is under pressure. Allison, does Credit Suisse, given what Swiss regulators have done to the banking system there, in any way represent a risk to the wider financial system? I mean, banks, banks are obviously interconnected, but I do think that, um, you know, in terms of what the actual risks are at the bank, we, you know, the, the key business I think that, that I tend to worry about and investors tend to worry about is the prime brokerage business, because I think that that's a business that can be vulnerable to market sentiment in terms of when, um, you know, those clients get worried, it's very easy for them to pull balance away, and that can sort of unravel very quickly. We saw that at, at Bear Stearns during the, the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, Deutsche Bank, we, we saw that happen um, when they had some liquidity issues. But Credit Suisse has gotten out of that business. 98% of the revenues were gone as of the second quarter. So I think that's, to me, should, should be some comfort because that would be the business that, that I would be the most worried about in terms of market sentiment translating into a fundamental impact. I also wonder, though, if sort of like getting lower liquidity requirements is now never going to happen for European banks or U.S. banks based on all of this. Uh, it's going to be hard to make that case. It is. And keep in mind that, I mean, the liquidity requirements that we have today, um, you know, it ensures a much, much more stable base, if you will. These are requirements that we did not have at the time of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Again, we, we know that liquidity can change very quickly. One of the biggest drivers, again, the prime brokerage business, which which Credit Suisse is not in. Um, But also, I would keep in mind that, you know, Credit Suisse had these significant risk issues a year ago. So they've been more erring on the safe side in terms of regulators and and those kind of metrics. Alice, it's always great to get your thoughts. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, Bloomberg's Alison Williams on what is happening at Credit Suisse. Up next, we're going to pivot back to the energy sector. That's up next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson over in London. Quick check in here on the markets. U.S. markets still trading, going nowhere fast. Uh, I mentioned earlier we got initial jobless claims increasing. The challenger job cuts also rose. So that sets the stage for tomorrow's jobs number. Um, you are seeing a sell-off all across the bond market. Obviously, U.K. getting hit the hardest. But we're also feeling it here in, in the U.S. as well. Neil Kashkari talking over the last couple hours saying that the bar to shifting our stance on policy is very high. 
I don't know how much more hawkish you can sound than that. Um, echoing Mary Daly yesterday, saying that cuts are not on the table in 2023, yet somehow they're still in the market. So that's a quick snapshot of what's happening here in the U.S. Let's get some other headlines here with Charlie. Hi, thank you very much. And here's what's going on, Alex Steele. Britain's grid operator is warning that some customers will face the risk of three-hour power cuts on cold, calm days as the country heads into winter with the smallest margin of backup power supplies in seven years. Now, this is according to one scenario outlined by National Grid in its latest winter outlook, which also included for the first time the impact of having no electricity imports from continental Europe. The cost of a five-year fixed-rate mortgage has breached 6% for the first time in more than a decade as the Chancellor of the Exchequer met with the nation's biggest lenders. The average five-year fixed-rate mortgage on a UK home rose today to 6.02%, the highest since February of 2010, according to Money Facts Group. Mark your calendar. King Charles is expected to be crowned on June 3rd next year in a ceremony at Westminster Abbey, speaking on condition of anonymity before for a public announcement, the government officials said plans are converging on that Saturday near the start of the summer, although discussions over which other days will become official holidays are still ongoing. Buckingham Palace declined to comment. The coronation almost 70 years to the day after his mother was crowned will form the centerpiece of days of celebration to mark the beginning of the monarch's reign. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Was that 6% for the two-year or five-year fix? Five. Uh, it was uh, 6.02% five for five a five-year year mortgage. Unbelievable. Yeah. That's a huge rise. That kind of hurts. Uh, especially for the refi, you, you you don't have to refi, do you, guy? Redjust? Yeah, you have to. Uh, so if you've got a five year fix, you basically every five years at, at the end of that, you have to you have to refinance every five years. Most people though are on a shorter one, two or three year. So there's a lot of those rolling off at the moment, and they're north of six percent. So it's really painful. Well, yeah, that's. I just can't imagine like dealing with a budget uh, on that. Let's talk about budgets. Because how do you budget when oil prices are going up? I'm going to make that pivot. Uh, Brent crude Excellent. up by, you know, but by about half a percent, uh, almost at 94. WTI uh, at 88. It's a big problem. So OPEC plus uh, cutting production by about 2 million barrels of oil a day. The real cuts looking somewhere around a million. Let's just call it that. Part of the reason is macro uncertainty. Part of the reason straight up is they want oil above 90. And they basically can say that because they want to incentivize production now and not later because they're very worried, so they say, about spare capacity guy. It, it's it's a huge problem at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I don't quite know. The U.S. is in a really difficult position. I, I think if Biden reacts really aggressively to this, there's a danger that we need to, that we end up looking like he's reacting to this for political purposes rather yeah. than actually doing the right thing for the economy. Yeah, a hundred percent. So um, I, I caught up with. Uh, Amos Hochstein, he's White House Special Envoy and Coordinator of International Energies. Uh, and we talked about this and what the U.S. administration is going to do. Let me just stress where we are today. We were very disappointed in the uh, decision by OPEC and Russia yesterday. Uh, we think it was a mistake. One, it's not, uh, it's not substantiated by energy markets, by the global economy, or by any other metric. Uh, it was unnecessary at this time. Uh, prices are already elevated. Uh, there was no real imminent threat of a, uh, of a major collapse in prices that would necessitate a, uh, a cut. Uh, I understand that, you know, having watched OPEC for a long time, there's a difference between mm -hmm. what they announce and what they actually do. 
Uh, OPEC's uh, quotas are, they're, produ they're underproducing their quotas by more than the two, two million uh, barrel cut that they've announced. So mm -hmm. let's see if this actually has any impact whatsoever in actual production numbers. Right. Uh, we are going to continue to work at home uh, and with our allies. So One, we're going to work with our U.S. companies to ensure that they continue to increase production mm -hmm. uh, and make sure that we have the refining capacity. Uh, we're down a couple refineries due to uh, some accidents and maintenance mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that we have enough inventory uh, along uh, the East Coast and parts of the Midwest yeah. and the West Coast to make sure that we have supplies. And we're going to continue to focus on bringing down prices. And to that end, we have still some work to do on the SPR. Okay, almost. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, so uh, one of the reasons that OPEC talked about doing this was, in essence, to incentivize spare capacity. Higher oil price now to get more oil out of the ground, because if not, it's going to stay in the ground and there will be a shortage. If there is some truth to that, why not take that view with U.S. producers? Why go to your allies? We have oil here that we can get out. Why not pick up the phone to oil production uh, uh, companies and say, guys, what can we do to get you to produce more? Alex, there's a there's an, uh, an assumption based in your question that we're not doing that. For the last, even publicly, for the last several months, we have had conversations with the leadership of almost every major oil producer in the United States, told them, what do you need to be incentivized to increase production? We've had that honest conversation. They have what they need. They do not need anything else. I've had this conversation but with them. But I think, honestly, if, if we talk to the industry, they would point out that it's the threat of regulation down the road that's the issue. Um, how Alex, I, mm -hmm. I take issue with that. Okay. Uh, I, I don't think that that's actually accurate. I think, in fact, if you look at where the, you know, it's always about where you put your money. CapEx has increased among the major producers of the United States this year. Uh, they're increasing production. They announced those increases uh, in, in CapEx uh, just several months ago, but it takes time for that to materialize in production. We've seen them increase production. We know that the projection is for them to increase production into 2023, mm -hmm. first couple of quarters of 2023. They have what they need. I, okay. You know, rhetoric aside, I think they have what they need. They're doing that. We're calling on them to continue to do that. Uh, we have a good discussion with them. We don't always agree. That is true. And uh, you know that this administration believes in accelerating the energy transition. But we do agree that in order to accelerate the energy transition, we need to have a functioning U.S. economy and global economy. And for that, we still need oil production to rise in the United States. Yes. That's what we're talking to them about, and I think that's where we're going. Um, almost okay. So to that point, can you basically play the forward curve like the Saudis are, in essence? Can you drain your SPR now and promise to buy certain oil from oil producers in the U.S. six to nine months when that, when that production comes online? I feel like that would give the market a lot of certainty. That would give oil producers a lot of certainty. Well, let me be very clear. I said this before several months ago. We haven't said it in a while. But let me be very, very clear. Our intention is that when prices come down, we will be replenishing the SPR. We've always said that from the beginning. And we've told that to your point. We've said that to the industry that there will be repurchasing because what I really, what we really care about is the econo economic security of the United States and the national security of the United States. And to do that, we have to have a well-supplied uh, strategic petroleum reserve that we can deploy at times of emergency. So that we are going to be replenishing that. But the president announced a 180 million barrel uh, release over a period of six months. It's been more than six months, but we haven't actually released the full 180 million barrels.
That was Amaj Hotstein uh, speaking earlier uh, to me and Emery Hordern, White House Special Envoy and Coordinator for International Energy Affairs. I think a lot of oil companies would take issue maybe uh, with what he was saying. It took them a long time to talk to oil companies when gasoline was at $5. The conversation's changing, but it could be changing at a really much slower pace. All right, coming up, we're going to get back to the market here. Um, you know, Twitter, Musk, that whole thing. It's still happening. What are the details? This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. I know many of you are going to feel angry, frustrated and emotionally drained by today's news. But please know this is a necessary step if we're going to save Peloton. And we are. Barry McCarthy, the CEO of Peloton, reaching out to staff after he announced that there will be an additional 500 more jobs going at that company in an effort to save the business. This is the fourth round of layoffs we've seen at Peloton. How many more are there going to be required in order to put this business back on a stable platform? The company remains in a spin, and at this point in time, it's difficult to see where the future is going to take it. Ed Ludlow covering this and the Twitter story for us. Let's talk about both these businesses. Ed, I want to start on Peloton. Sure. The efforts keep coming to stabilize the company. When does stabilization come? How many more jobs are going to have to be lost? Yeah, I, I would say that Peloton signaled to employees this was the end, you know, that this final 500 layoffs kind of completed their initial restructuring plans. You have to remember the goal is cash flow break even, you know, is that kind of gives you a real sense of how bad things are, right? If a company's one goal is just to reach cash flow break even yep. and, and how quickly this story's changed. And, you know, 500 is a relatively small increment in the context of this year. I think we're at layoffs of around 4,600 year to date. So they have but, carried but out it's painful not, cuts. But it's not the end because because are they going to shut their retail stores still? Right. Are they going to shut there's other bit, but parts of the business that are still potentially going to be going to be downsized? Yeah, so I mean, from a headcount reduction perspective, this seems to be us getting towards the latter stages i guess the other way of looking at it is that we started the year with peloton at near to nearer to eight thousand employees and now they're down at 3700 but you're right in north america in particular they are going to cut uh, to close you know cut off their retail stores but they lost 100 million dollars last year on the on those retail locations um so you know this is part of the pain but you know they at least, I guess, if you're an investor, Peloton's up 2% now. You you look at this as further evidence that Barry McCarthy is committed to the plan that he outlined. Um, Quickly on this point, what went so terribly wrong? How did they mess this one up so much? Yeah, Peloton was a pandemic-era darling. It got really bloated when demand was good. It planned for growth, and that growth fell off a cliff. The demand fell off a cliff, and it found itself is a company that was trying to fulfill not just the sales side of the business, but all sides, right? This beautiful VIP experience that they were paying for to have your bike delivered and installed for you, having an online presence and a retail presence, um, having a high-end product. Well, the consumer is struggling right now. So it was kind of a perfect storm of the demand disappears and your company is set up in such a way that you're only ready to to kind of operationally perform in the boom times. And sadly for them, the boom times are over. Let's turn to Twitter. Sure. Update us on the saga. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of detail and reporting coming out about what's happened in recent weeks, right? Reports that Musk went back to Twitter and tried to seek a lower valuation or a lower offer. For me, that's not hugely a surprise. I don't know about you guys, but it's kind of like, duh. 
um, in the context of the market decline. It sounds funny with an accent when you say that. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Durr. Uh, anyway, uh, we move on. We digress. Um, and, 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 you know, the, nothing has changed technically. You know, Kathleen St. Jude McCormick, the Chantry judge who was due to oversee the trial starting on October 17th, said yesterday evening... No update. I have no indication from Twitter that they're going to stay legal proceedings. Mm -hmm. All we know is that Musk has said, okay, let's proceed with the original offer terms and the bulls in your court, Twitter. Quickly on this, um, is Twitter protecting itself this time around in a way they hadn't before? You know, I think there's certainly concerns about Musk's true intentions. Um, You know, other reporting out there is that potential equity partners like Apollo and Sixth Street, who never signed on, by the way, but apparently many months ago they decided they didn't want any part of it, you know what is musk really doing here that's part of it and and the debt angle i mean i think we really need to pay attention to that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. the, yeah. the 12.5 billion debt component of Musk's financing package is very concerning yeah yeah huh i would say i would agree with that as well it's just, um, like, a, it's just like a lot of silly noises duh yeah i didn't say I, duh it's, it's almost friday guy we're losing duh. energy and intellect duh it's actually yeah. my Friday because I'm, I'm on location uh, shooting tomorrow. So I wish it was my Friday. I am uh, quite tired. He is. He, he's toast. Um, all right, Ed, thanks a lot. Ed Ludlow uh, joining us there. Uh, coming, up, uh, duh. coming up, we'll talk about jobs. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> this is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg TV Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson over in the UK. Uh, it's almost 6 o'clock where you guys are. So it's like, what, T minus, I don't know, time change and, and times are hard. So it's T minus something until we get jobs day uh, here in the US. The expectation is a change in non-farm payrolls up by about 250,000. Unemployment rate to 3.7%. That would be no change uh, sequentially. Average hourly earnings on a year-on-year basis to 5.1%, slightly lower sequentially. And labor force participation stands strong at 62.4%. Okay, that's what we think is going to happen. Let's get to read with what's actually going to happen with Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. All right, Mike, what number does the Fed actually want? Uh, We've seen a change. They are watching average hourly earnings, as they have been for months, but really it's the total number of jobs created that is going to matter the most this month because they want to see a slowdown in the economy and a slower pace of hiring would indicate that that is happening. Okay, that's what the Fed wants. What are the expectations going into this? How wide uh, are the bands that we're operating in here? What does the market think is going to happen? Who's high? Who's low? Uh, the market is thinking that at this point um, we could go from 199, I think, to uh, 360s or something, 399, I think, some, somewhere in that area, and uh, that is not particularly wide for what we have seen yeah. over the last year and a half. But it's kind of hard to put that in perspective because nobody knew what was going on post pandemic and how the labor market would react. Mm-hmm. We knew there were millions of jobs, but it turned out there weren't the same number of workers who wanted jobs, so it was hard to predict what hiring would be. However, you go back in the five years before the pandemic began, the monthly average was 191,000. So 260, the Bloomberg consensus, would still be considered a strong report, even though in the context of the last year, year and a half, uh, it's much weaker. But it would show sequential slowdown, which is what the Fed does want to see. Um, Labor force participation rate, I feel like, has also been the chatter over the last couple of months. What do you look for? 
Well, people have been uh, people. Uh, we'll, we'll just call it the Fed's been looking for a rise in the participation rate. More people looking for work would mean that uh, more people are uh, available for those open jobs, and the labor market wouldn't be as tight as it is, and wages wouldn't have to go up as much as they have. But uh, I think they've. They're sort of putting that aside. They're thinking now that the labor force participation rate is about where it's going to be, could go a little bit higher. You know, could be a little volatile, go up a point or uh, a tenth. These are measured in tenths, but tenths of a point or go down tenth of a point. But the, those who have come back to work have pretty much come back to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the baby boomers continue to retire, and and a lot of them have just left the labor force. Maybe they left a few years earlier than they anticipated. But they won't be coming back. Maybe in a recession, if their if their money is running out, they might. But right now, they won't be coming back. And then there's the long COVID people uh, who can't come back uh, because they're they're essentially in a disabled situation. So we're not looking for big changes in the participation rate, but uh, it will affect yeah. the unemployment rate, which will matter to the Fed. They want that to. St- Day, to go up a little bit, show that the economy is slowing, but not go up very far. The, the big surprise out of the labor market over the last few days, and let's widen the lens a little bit here, was the jolts number, the job openings number. And, and that came down very, very sharply, sequentially, month on month. Um, but, but the more I think about that, the more I'm, I'm kind of less concerned about it. There are still, in the United States, many more job openings than, than there are people. Just, just put that, that number into context for us vis-a-vis the employment number we're going to get tomorrow and how the Fed is thinking about this all in totality? Well, the number is still over 10 million, and it's 1.7 jobs for every unemployed person, uh, down from two uh, jobs for every unemployed person, which is not a huge change. Uh, So there are still a lot of job openings, but how real are those openings? What companies have been saying is uh, they are – They'll go to a a job posting board and sign a contract for three months' worth of of job postings, and then they'll fill some of the jobs, decide to not fill some of the jobs, but they won't go back to the company and say, take those off. They'll just let the contract expire. So you get a sort of delayed reaction. And uh, Fed officials are saying, well, maybe now this latest number, the August number, is what we expected to happen. Those Jobs that are not going to be filled are falling off. The contracts are expiring, and there's not that many job openings. And we may mm-hmm. see this again for the September numbers. So that brings it more into perspective. The labor market would be a little bit looser, not as tight as it was. Yeah. And that kind of gives them hope that the average hourly earnings will start to come down and that inflationary cycle won't start. So I also want to take a look at kind of the opposite lens, and that's the challenger job cuts that we saw for September today. They were super high. Does that reflect any meaningful trend, or is this reflecting, as I read in one analyst note, just the fact that people haven't necessarily hired yet for their holiday staffing season, or they're not hiring as much yet because there is still a little bit uh, lack of clarity on demand? A challenge is one of those numbers that's been around forever that economists generally don't pay a lot of attention to, mm-hmm. <clears throat> essentially because... Uh, That's it, Mike's really nice way of being yeah, like, that yeah, was a dumb question. Let's move on to something else. Show up, but, uh, <laughs> the challenger numbers are worldwide. So they're Dad, not you just, heard that the same uh, way as me. Not just in the United States. And they also reflect uh, job losses by attrition, not just uh, people who are going to be laid off. And so it's kind of hard to make sense of exactly what it means. The fact that we're seeing 
the job uh, cuts numbers yep. rise in general mm -hmm. tells you something, but the actual numbers and the numbers by uh, by job category, I mean, tech jobs, of course, we're seeing them sort of lead the pack in holding off. But right now, we're not seeing a huge change in unemployment claims, which would give you a better feel for how many job cuts are actually going on right now. In my defense, I got no. economist notes on the challenge of job cuts, okay? Okay, in I'm just going to say, defense. sometimes people say, that's a really good question. And that was like the complete 180 on It that. was. It was. Mike was being. I'm just saying. It's not like I made it up. Yeah. Okay. At least one economist had a note on I it. I did, guy, tell her that I, I thought her haircut was nice. So I'm not always mean. I, th this is the radio, so people can't see Alex's haircut. But if, if, if there is one subject that has dominated the agenda this week on this particular show mm -hmm. and, and our TV show, it has been Alex's haircut. It has. I think it we're has. all hoping by the end of the week that, that we may not be forced to talk about it anymore. But I find that hard to believe. Forced? He brings it up. I feel like we're a bickering couple. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs>